Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6. These gentlemen have Bibles, so if you don't have one with you, then get their attention, and they'll get one to you so you can look at the passage we'll be considering. In our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. And you can see that uh, in chapter 6, we're in the very last chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're going to be considering verses 18 through 20, so we are very near the end of that last chapter, and so near the end of this series. I think this is the 40th message in the book of Ephesians, so we are closing in on the end. Next week, we'll have a Mother's Day message, and then maybe conclude the following week uh, with verses 21 through 24, but we will see. We were all no doubt amazed one year ago this week when about two dozen of our Navy SEALs flew stealth helicopters into Abbottabad, Pakistan. They did that in the wee hours of the morning to the compound that housed Osama bin Laden, his family, and a number of his aides. These Navy SEALs were able to enter the house. They were able to find and kill bin Laden whisk his body and various materials that they had obtained out of the house and get all of that done in 38 minutes, escaping with all of our people alive. And all who participated in that knew the risks. Thankfully, none of them realized the worst. And that was in large part because the raid was a total surprise carried out in secrecy from not only bin Laden's people, but from the Pakistani government as well. In war, the element of surprise is often very important. Now consider what we as followers of Jesus have been called to do. Christians have been commissioned by Christ to engage in a dangerous rescue mission. We saw a couple of weeks ago that we are to put on the helmet of salvation. At at that time, we defined what salvation is. It is saving, rescuing, delivering. And God is then saving, rescuing, delivering people from captivity. And we are his military personnel. But we do not have the protection of secrecy. The enemy knows us, knows our objectives. He knows the one offensive weapon that we've been given in the list of six that we've considered over the last several weeks. That one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He knows that one offensive weapon better than most of us. He knows that he's defeated. And like a cornered animal with nothing to lose, he fights unceasingly and viciously against us. And so what are we to do? How are we to wage this warfare where the enemy is greater than we are and he knows what we're up to? Over the last several messages, we've looked at the six pieces of armor God supplies for us. And as extensive and protective as all of that is, it's still not enough. As we engage in our mission we must be in regular communication with headquarters. And so after detailing our equipment for the fight, in verses 10 through 17, verse 18 says this. Pray. And it says specifically, pray in the Spirit. Now what does that mean? I think you probably all get that we need to pray, that we need to be in communication with headquarters in this vicious war that we're called to, where the enemy knows what we're doing. We need to communicate with headquarters. We need the the help of our commanding officer. But what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? On one occasion, as Jesus walked the earth, one of his first followers asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And in Luke 11, Jesus 
honors that request by giving them what we call the disciples' prayer. And then he gives some explanation regarding the content of that prayer. And then Jesus says this, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now notice that I have good gifts in brackets. And that's because, even though that's what we might expect there, if you guys know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, does your Father in heaven know to give good gifts to you? But it's actually not what Jesus says. It's not that the Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. Here's what it says. How much more will your Father in heaven give, and then it says, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And with that, we begin to get an idea of what it means to pray in the Spirit. Jesus has just been asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives the model prayer, the disciples' prayer. He gives an explanation. And then he says, available to you is this crucial person, the Holy Spirit, as it relates to your prayer. Now, you may say, well, that's not really what I was looking forward to. If the Lord's going to give me something, just give me what I told you I need. I've laid out my list of requests to you. It would be fine with me, Lord, if you would just give me that stuff. That's not really what I wanted for you to say, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. But think about it this way. All of the requests of a believing heart can or should be summarized in requesting that things will go as they should that things in my life around me and with those that you, God, have placed in my circle of influence, that they will go in a way that is best. I mean, that really summarizes, should summarize, all of the stuff we lay out before the Lord. Lord, make it go the way it's supposed to. And did you know there's a promise in the Bible, a promise in the Bible, from God to every believing heart, that that's precisely what will happen. Most of you are familiar with it. I alluded to it in my pastoral prayer. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So if a summation of the prayers of every believing heart is, Lord, that things will go as they're supposed to in my life, God makes this promise that they will ultimately go as they are supposed to, that all things will be worked out for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit in prayer? Notice the first word on the screen, and. I have it highlighted because that word connects verse 28 with the verses that precede. And here's what the verses that precede Romans 8:28 say. The Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I don't know what to ask for because I don't see the big picture. I don't know what God's sovereign will is that will ultimately work out for my good. I don't know. I don't know how to pray best. But here's the good news. God has given you the greatest gift in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And when it says He intercedes with groans that words cannot express. If you were to read Romans chapter 8, you would find that that word groan has already been used twice. This is the third time in reference to the Spirit. 
It's used once with reference to creation. And it says creation groans in anticipation of what God is going to do in recreation. And it says believers groan, awaiting God's restoration of all things. And it likens our groaning to that of a woman in labor. The idea is that there is an eagerness and an urgency. And what we're being told then in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8 is that the Spirit can bring an eagerness and an urgency that we cannot. He knows what is best. He knows what God's sovereign will is. He is God the Spirit. We know His moral will. It's given to us in the pages of Scripture. But God the Spirit knows God's sovereign will. And we know that. That God works all things for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. And so author Brian Chappell says of this passage in Romans 8, The Spirit becomes Christ's instrument of intercession for us. He pleads for God to order the temporal world for our eternal good. And because our triune God cannot deny Himself, the Father must respond to the near and dear cries of the Spirit. Hear this line. The Father makes all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of the Spirit. The Father makes all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of God the Spirit on our behalf who knows absolutely what is for our good. Pray in the Spirit means pray to God despite what we do not know. And even because of what we do not know. Our ignorance of what is best should compel us to pray because we have God the Spirit who knows what is best for us. But praying in the Spirit also means to ask God because of what the Spirit has made known to us in the word that the Spirit has given. And so, I don't know what's best. In God's grand plan, I don't know. The Spirit does I can come confidently knowing that the Spirit translates my prayers into what is ultimately best. But then there are things that I do know. Why do I know them? Because the Spirit gave them. Where did He give them? He wrote a book. It's called the Word of God. Verse 17 says, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We know that life from the Word of God, we know That life and everything that happens in it is about us. You say, wait a minute. I don't think I've ever heard you say that. That life and everything in it is about us. It doesn't sound right. But Romans 8.28 says that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And so it raises the question, well, what's so special about us? (laughs) You should know the answer to that. Nothing. This is Romans 8. If you were to read Romans 1 through 3, you would be disabused very quickly of the notion that there's anything special about you or me. Or if you were to read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we were all by nature objects of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins. Nothing special about us, but something special has happened to us. We have been saved, rescued, delivered, as we saw two weeks ago. And we are being saved in the present, rescued, delivered from ourselves from our sin as seen in our desires and our habits and our addictions and our attitudes. And we are in the present being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's what the next verse in Romans 8 says. That we're being made into the likeness of His Son. 
So God's plan is to rescue people who are now blind. We saw that last week. He rescues those blind people like us by opening the eyes of our hearts to see Him as He is and ourselves as we are. God's plan is to rescue people, though, who are not only blind, but people who are captive. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4, to Jesus speaking, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Now, friends, please hear this. We have been given sight and we have been set free. And we are now called to proclaim the message that gives sight and sets free. But here's the problem. The captives are now the possession of a diabolical warden. And he not only fights because he's in a blind rage, as we saw last week, but also because he wants to keep what, no, not what, who he already has. He possesses prisoners, captives, and he will not give them up without a fight to the death. The warden of the captives will fight to the death to try and keep any from being saved, from being rescued, from being delivered. And so we don't know God's sovereign plan, but God the Spirit does. And we know that God is moving all human history, which is centered on God rescuing His own, and He's working all things to that end. And the Bible says even the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It's kind of wordy. You know what it's saying? That history will be completed, creation will be recreated when the last of those God is going to rescue is delivered, is saved. And creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be made known. Who are these people that are being rescued? And once that rescue mission is over, then history is over. We don't know who those people are. We are purchasing a ministry center, Lord willing, this week. We are going to move into Trenton. And we don't know who the people are that God has in that city. We go there armed with the Word of God, as the people of God, in the power of the Spirit of God, to give the message and to see the sons of God made known. We should be praying for them now. Who are those people that God is going to use us to reach? We do know what our Lord's battle plan is. And it involves us as his foot soldiers engaging in hand-to-hand combat with the warden of men's souls who aims to keep them captive forever, if he can, in the eternal penitentiary of the damned. And this is the main reason we pray. Because prayer is our communication to headquarters as we engage in God's rescue mission. Pray in the Spirit, verse 18. Now, lest you think, I make this up, that this is the main reason for prayer, to be in communication with headquarters. I say in the title at the top of your outline, contacting the war room. And I'm not making any of this up because the context of Ephesians 6 and verse 18 where we're told to pray in the Spirit and we're going to see in a bit on all occasions for all the saints in all sorts of ways. The context of that is the spiritual warfare that we've just been told about from verses 10 through 17. And then when you come to verses 19 and 20, notice what Paul says who wrote this. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Do you all see that prayer is for the purpose 
primarily of this mission to which we've been called. To rescue captives out of darkness through the light of the message of the gospel. And so with that, let's take a few moments then to pray. We're going to ask the Spirit to do what is best in our lives. God the Spirit, you know better than me what's best for my life. And I ask you, O Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, do what is best in our individual lives. And do what is best in the life of our church as your people. We're going to pray as well for what we do know. We don't know what's best. We don't know what's best this afternoon, tomorrow, next week. He does. We'll pray as well for what we do know. That God wants His mission to advance through us. And so let's pray for strength and provision and focus upon the advance of the mission. Let's bow together. Our Father, we come before You in our weakness, in our limitations, in our sin. But we come before you because we have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ and his precious blood. We come before you as then sons and daughters who stand before you unworthy but accepted in the beloved. And Lord, we come before you in all these limitations not knowing what's best for us. Many of us came into this room on this Lord's Day wondering why what happened this week has transpired at all. I pray that I and we have been reminded that whatever it was, it is ultimately for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. We admit we didn't know that this week. We don't know this afternoon. We don't know this coming week. We will never know your sovereign plan until after the fact. And so we trust you. We entrust our lives to you. We ask you, God the Holy Spirit, to pray in ways that we cannot Because you know what is best for us. And the Father will always respond to your interceding on our behalf. We pray as well, our God, that you would help us to remember that everything in all creation is bowing before the good of those who love you. That you are orchestrating all of that. Because it's ultimately about you and us and those you call out of the world and to yourself being made like you. It's the entire reason for your rescue mission. It's the entire reason that you have sent us into a hostile world to preach the good news that gives sight to the blind and frees the captives. Thank you for giving us sight. Thank you for freeing our souls. And now, Lord, we are doing your bidding in your world. We are your ambassadors. We have been in Huron Township. And we have been in Woodhaven. We are going to to Trenton. Lord, we want to be your light in darkness, wherever that darkness is. We want to be used as your mouthpieces to see the light of your gospel penetrate the dark hearts of those who are outside of you now. We ask you, Lord God, to prepare hearts of your people, those that you are intent on calling out of the world and to yourself. Lord, help us to go in the coming months to this new location with great confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who is calling light out of darkness. That we will go, as did your servant Paul, into the city because of your promise, I have many people in this city. Lord, help us as we look at this passage of Scripture to see that you have given prayer as this weapon to us for the mission to which you have called us. May we use it accordingly. And may we, may we obediently and joyfully serve as your foot soldiers in the spiritual war for men's and women's and children's souls. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The sword of the Spirit, verse 17, which is the Word of God, is wielded 
by prayer for the battle at hand. We don't know what is best. God the Spirit does. But we do know we're in a battle to the death that requires strength that is beyond us. We know we are in a war because the Spirit has told us in His Word, which is the sword that He has given us, that we are in this, in this war. And so I say in your outline, if we are to fulfill our role in God's plan, then we must request general provisions for this wider war. General provisions for the wider war. Now, I say general for this reason. Verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18 says, Pray in the Spirit, notice, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, always keep on praying for all the saints. Do you see that four times? <laughs> all occasions, all kinds, always, all the saints. And so in general, I need to be in communication with headquarters in all of these categories because of the wider war that we are engaged in. Now I say we must request general provisions. They are general, but they are also purposeful. And this is the key to us praying properly, is that we pray with God's purposes always in mind. We had a series at the end of last year in our Discovering God Hour called Praying With Your Eyes Open. Some of you were part of that. If you were not part of that, like all of our messages, those are recorded. And we talked about what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. We all say that. Most of us just say it out of habit. Brian Chappell, who I quoted earlier, has a book called Beginning in Jesus' Name. Starting your prayers in Jesus' Name. In fact, the name of the book is praying backwards. Instead of ending in Jesus' name, start in Jesus' name because praying in Jesus' name means that I want these things to occur in order to see the purposes of Jesus fulfilled. And so even when I make requests for general provisions, those requests are for the purpose of seeing the purposes of Jesus advance. Is that how you use prayer? I already know the answer to that. It's not the way most of us do that, is it? I've got my list of stuff. I ask the Lord to supply it. But you think about this. I read this story this week as I was studying for this passage about a Christian couple who was befriending a Hindu couple. And they hoped to share the gospel with this Hindu couple. They invited them out to dinner. and They were going to the home of a friend of the Christian couple, another Christian. On the way over, the Hindu couple sort of witnessed to the Christians. And they said, we pray to a particular God, and this God has supplied all of these things for us. They credited their false God with all of the stuff that they had been given, that they had been blessed with. Well, then they arrived at the home of this other Christian. I guess a really nice place. The Hindu couple commented on what a nice place it was. And the Christian said, yes, God has blessed us with all of this. And that was it. Not God has blessed us with all of this to advance the mission of Jesus. God has just blessed us with it. And that is as far as it goes for so many professing Christians. Jesus is cool because Jesus gives me stuff. But friends, there's a reason Jesus gave you that stuff. The stuff is not an end in itself. The stuff is to be used for the purposes for which he gave it, namely the advance of his mission, engaging in warfare. And when we simply say, our God is great because he gives me stuff, we're not saying anything more than one who adheres to worship of a false God can say. So we must request general provisions but for the purpose of the wider war. 
We are told in verse 18, we must ask, I say in your outline, continually. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. The early church did this. They understood that they were in a war. They were under the threat of persecution all, of the, all the time. Many of them died, as you all know. But Acts chapter 1 tells us they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The Bible tells us just very plainly, pray continually. So how am I praying constantly? How am I praying continually? Well, it doesn't mean that you're in a posture of prayer all the time, <laughs> that you're bowed down all the time. You can never go anywhere. You can never actually obey the commands, other commands of Scripture because you're bowing in prayer all the time. It doesn't actually mean that you're moving your lips all the time. When you're trying to order something, you can't order it because you're praying. In fact, I know this because those who wrote these commands at least paused long enough for praying to write these commands. So it doesn't mean bowing down all the time, talking to God verbally all the time. But it does mean, as many of you have heard, that we are constantly in communication with headquarters, in an attitude of prayer. I think I've told some of you this before in our community groups, but one of the things that I find myself doing regularly is when people come to me and they ask for counsel, they ask for advice, they ask for answers from God's Word. You don't know it as you're standing three feet away from me, but I'm asking God for His aid as I give His Word into this situation. Because the truth is, it's beyond me. It's beyond my ability. I have very limited knowledge. But He has all knowledge. And He can bring to my remembrance even the limited knowledge that I have and help me make application of it to this brother or sister or child. In an attitude of prayer all the time. And so Thomas Kelly says in his testament of devotion, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine blessings. John Wesley said of the Christian who is in a constant attitude of prayer, his heart is ever lifted up to God at all times and in all places. In this he is never hindered, much less interrupted by any person or thing. In retirement or in company, in leisure, business, or conversation, his heart is ever with the Lord. Whether he lies down or rises up, God is in all his thoughts. He walks with God continually, having the loving eye of his mind still fixed upon him and everywhere, seeing him that is invisible. We must request general provisions, praying continually, but secondly in your outline, praying variously. Verse 18 says, pray with all kinds of prayers and requests. So prayers of thanksgiving. Requests of petition, give us this day our daily bread. Prayers for the salvation of loved ones, those that God has placed in our circle of influence. Satan is going to fight like crazy to keep any from being rescued. And his very best weapon is our laziness and prayerlessness. And that's why thirdly, verse 18 tells us we must ask persistently. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. In The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis has his Lion King Aslan send two children on a mission with Fledge, the flying horse. After a while, they discover they have no food. The children are dismayed. Well, I do think someone might have arranged our meals, said one of them. I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd asked him, said Fledge, the horse. Well, wouldn't he know without being asked? 
I've no doubt he would, said the horse. But I have a sort of idea that he likes to be asked. Did you know Jesus said in Matthew 6, before he gave the model prayer in that passage to his first followers, your father has knows what you need before you ask. He knows, but he wants to be he wants to be asked as well. And so we ask persistently and then fourthly, we ask cooperatively. Cooperatively. The last part of verse 18 says, keep on praying for all the saints. You see, God has not called us to this mission and this warfare alone, but in concert, together with one another. And so we pray in light of the mission, in light of Jesus' purposes, we pray for one another. Paul saw it this way over and over again, that he was in partnership with others, partnership in prayer for the advance of the mission. This is why I said in two weeks when we come to verse 21, at the end of this letter, we might finish in one week. But it might actually take more than one week. Here's why. I'm considering taking some time to show all of the connections between Paul and these unknown, relatively unknown people that he mentions at the end of all of his letters. That's what he does at the end of Ephesians, at the end of 1 Corinthians, at the end of Romans. At the end of all of his letters, he mentions some people who are partners with him in the gospel. And so we are in this mission, we are in this warfare, and we pray in light of that, and we pray for all the saints in light of that. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, I thank my God to the saints in Philippi. Every time I remember you, in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Here's why. Because you're just the nicest people in the world. I'm sure they were. You guys have the coolest potluck. I mean, you just think about why we thank God for people. Here's why Paul thanked God for the Philippians. Because of your partnership in the gospel. From the verse day until now. Then he goes, does Paul, from pray for all, always, to now, in verses 19 and 20, pray for me, now. Evangelism is war. The mission means war. And the focal point of the war is us giving the gospel so that captives are freed and they become subject to a new master. Do you get that? That this message frees people so that they are no longer subject to the old master. And the old master will not give way easily. And therefore Paul says, pray for me now. As I'm engaged in doing this. And so I say in your outline, we must request specific provisions for the particular battle. God gave prayer for the purpose of this mission. Where do you see that? John 15. Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. Now get this, you see it highlighted, so that. So I gave you a mission of evangelism, of missions to rescue the captives so that, for the purpose that, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Regularly throughout Scripture, you see this connection between the mission and the warfare that goes with it and the necessity of being in communication with headquarters. Luke 21. Jesus said, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is Jesus talking to his first followers and saying, I'm sending you out on this mission now. Pray. Pray that you'll be able to withstand the evil, the warfare that's going to take place because of what I'm calling you to do. 
He says, pray also for me. It's not that. Now notice, he says, pray in verse 19 also for me. He does not say, pray for so-and-so who I witness to. Pray for me as the one doing the witnessing. Did you know that that is usually the way Scripture tells us to pray evangelistically? Not for the people to whom we're giving the gospel. It's for the people who are giving the gospel. Now, it's good to pray, as we'll see in a moment, for those that we, God has placed in our path and we want to see come to Christ. That's a good thing. It's not usually the way the Bible speaks. Usually it's pray for the evangelist, not those who are being evangelized. The truth is, those who the Father is rescuing are going to be saved. Jesus said as much in John 6. All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. This is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none of them that he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. They will be saved. Like our ultimate salvation, it is inevitable. And therefore, Paul did not pray for the results, but for the process. And Jesus told us to pray that way. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but workers are few. Ask then, pray, the Lord of the harvest, send out workers into his harvest field. Do you see what's being prayed for? The evangelists. Pray for them. Pray for their fight. Pray for their safety. Pray for their willingness that they will give the gospel. Now, he said it's good and right to pray for folks to be saved. Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my kinsmen, the Israelites, is that they may be saved. So as we engage in this warfare attached to the mission to which we've been called, I have three things for you in your outline that we ask specifically for. We ask for opportunity. Verse 19 says, Paul says, Pray for me that whenever. Whenever, on whatever opportunities God opens up, whatever doors God opens up. Colossians chapter 4, similar passage to this one, prayer and evangelism. He says, pray that doors of opportunity will be given to me. And he says, whenever I open my mouth, and that phrase, open my mouth, was used in New Testament times of a solemn presentation before the imperial court. He knew that he was going to be talking, giving the gospel to the imperial court. How did he know that? Verse 20 says, he's an ambassador. Do you see it? He's an ambassador in chains. In chapter 3 and verse 1, in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul has referred to his captivity. The fact that as he writes this, he is imprisoned. And he is asking now for opportunity and a willingness to open his mouth before the imperial court. Now, why is he concerned about this? One, he can't control the opportunities. God does that providentially. But also because he knows that he is susceptible, as are we, to cowardice in this process. And so secondly, we ask not only for opportunity, but we ask for what I call fidelity. That is, that we will be faithful. You could write faithfulness if you want. Ask for continued faithfulness on our part to the message. Verse 19 says, Pray that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That I will proclaim the whole gospel despite opposition. This implies, does it not, that this is scary business. That you're not the only one who is fearful. Paul says, pray for me that I will not be fearful, that I will be fearless. The reason he needs that is because he too felt that fear. And if I am fearless, that is going to manifest itself, verse 19, in words and in the gospel. Speaking is necessary. Pastor Matt and I were able to attend a conference a couple of weeks ago in Louisville. Very helpful. 
One of the speakers said that there has been a false notion for a few decades in evangelicalism that says evangelism can take place simply in our actions. And so one person, he quoted saying, preach the gospel regularly, use words if necessary. But the truth is you cannot preach the gospel without words. And that's why verse 19, Paul says, you speak with words the gospel boldly, fearlessly. But he, like we, is susceptible to cowardice. And then thirdly, we not only ask for opportunity, fidelity, but loyalty. I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it, the gospel, fearlessly as I should. You see, here is Paul. He is under arrest, under command of the Roman emperor. And the question for him as an ambassador who is in chains is who is his king? To whom is he loyal? And he understands his own weakness. And so he asks for prayer for him despite the fact that he is in this chain, that the gospel will not be chained. And that he will not be the one who is ultimately captive, but it will be his captors. And he has a captive audience in them. Now friends, I want to conclude with just some exhortation, not only for you, but for myself as well, with regard to this issue of how we pursue the mission in an attitude of regular prayer. I can tell you very honestly that the weakest part of my Christian life is regular, persistent prayer. And I don't say that easily. But I say it to you because, one, it is true, and because also you need to know that your pastor has no illusions about his own spiritual strength. I cannot stand in my own strength. None of us can. And for myself, I tend to focus on the things that God has provided for me to put to use and to do actively. And so I plan and I strategize and I cast a vision and I preach and I teach and these are all things that I'm called to do. But I forget the many, many things that I simply can't do. And those things that I can't do, and there is a zillion of them, <laughs> there's only one person who can. And I need his aid desperately. You see, I cannot produce converts. I cannot bring people to the Savior. I can only bring the Savior to people. But I'm being honest with you, I forget that. I can't do that. And if that is going to happen, it is going to happen. Because God is pleased to respond to the entreaties, to the prayers of his people. Yes, we must be activists. We must work. We must preach. We must teach. But we must ask the Lord of the harvest. Send labors and Lord, if results are going to be achieved... They will be achieved through your power, not through ours. We will only make a special priority of prayer if we see the special need of grace. We will only make a special priority of prayer when we see the special need for God's grace. And so we think about our own inadequacy to engage in this war and to fight this enemy vastly greater than we. And when we do, we are in good company. Because Paul said this, We are to God the aroma of Christ. Now notice, among two sets of people, those who are being saved, but also those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To those who are perishing, to those who who are not called by the gospel in an effectual way. There's opposition. 
They hate it, the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And here we are as his warriors, as his foot soldiers, as his evangelists, as his missionaries, not just me, not just the professionals, all of us sent out there to do that. And Paul asks the question, and who is equal to such a task? Unlike, he says, so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. (laughs) No TVs in that day, but apparently TV evangelists. Unlike so many, we do not do that. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men and women sent from God. Brothers and sisters, I say in your take-home truth, we can only succeed in spiritual warfare if we are in constant contact with our commanding officer. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, I just confess before you my sin of adequacy, and I ask your forgiveness, and I ask you, Lord, to regularly remind me of the many, 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 many things that I cannot do. The truth is there is nothing I can do. And apart from you, we can do nothing as you told us, but I think I can. We're able to get stuff done. The trains can run on time. You want that. But it's only because of you. And help me help us to remember that those we have those trains, those trains run. The machinery of ministry exists for a much larger purpose, not as an end in itself, but to call people out of darkness into light. To see captives set free, to see the blind given sight. And that happens through the gospel and the miracle of new birth. And I can't do that. And none of us can do that. And so, Lord, help us to see our deep inadequacy. And help us, therefore, to call out to you, to cry out to you, O God. Grant success for the efforts of your people. May the, as your servant, ask us to pray. May the word of God run and have success so that mouths that now curse you become mouths that praise you, so that worship exists where currently it does not. May that happen in Trenton and throughout Downriver because a praying people went forward on their knees. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.